0: Welcome, I'm Rose Aguilar, and this is your call. In 1862, President Abraham Lincoln signed the Morrill Act. It gave the U.S. government the power to take land from indigenous nations to fund a network of public colleges across the United States known as land-grant universities. But the Morrill Act is only one piece of legislation that connects land taken from indigenous communities to land-grant universities. A new investigation from Grist called Misplaced Trust reveals how many of these institutions continue to profit from this stolen land, largely through extractive industries, including oil and gas production, mining and logging. Some universities are making billions off these practices. Using publicly available data, the investigation located millions of acres taken from more than a 100 Indigenous nations to provide ongoing sources of revenue for educational institutions. Their reporting reveals how Indigenous lands and resources bankroll land-grant universities historically and today, and provides insight into the relationships between colonialism, higher education, and climate change. And this is happening as Native students struggle to afford and attend these same schools, including Texas A&M, Montana State University, the University of Wyoming, the University of Wisconsin, and South Dakota State University. Joining us are two journalists who worked on this series. Tristan Autone is a member of the Kiowa Tribe and editor-at-large of Grist, a nonprofit independent media organization dedicated to telling stories of climate Solutions and a just future. Tristan Autone previously served as editor-in-chief at the Texas Observer and as the indigenous affairs editor at High Country News. Tristan is one of seven journalists who wrote the Grist investigation, Misplaced Trust. Stolen indigenous land is the foundation of the land-grant university system. Climate change is its legacy. When he worked at High Country News, he co-wrote a piece called Land Grab Universities. Hi, Tristan. Thanks so much for joining us again. Thanks for having me great to have you. Maria Parasso-Rose is a reporter and spatial data analyst at Grist who also worked on this investigation, Misplaced Trust. Previously, Maria Parasso-Rose served as a producer on Resettled, a podcast that explores the refugee resettlement process in the U.S. and for NPR's Morning Edition in Pittsburgh. Hi, Maria. Thank you so much for joining us. Good to be here. Well, it's great to have you. Thank you both to you and your colleagues for this extensive, really incredible investigation. You all located and mapped more than 8.2 million acres of land taken from nearly 130 Indigenous nations that have produced billions of dollars for 14 land-grant universities. There are are maps in this piece. There are photos in this piece. Um, Tristan, can you first talk about how you got involved in looking at all of this? Um, given that you co-wrote a piece for High Country News called "Land Grab Universities."
1: Yeah, uh, good question. Um, I'm not sure how I found myself here, except through the piece at uh, High Country News. Um, essentially, uh, the number 2018 started working on land grab universities uh, after meeting my colleague Dr. Robert Lee, who's a co-author on the story, and. Um, and sort of springboarding the investigation off of his research. Uh obviously four uh 4 years later after publication we're still looking at uh this story and trying to build on our investigation and build on our research uh by looking by expanding sort of our scope. So um the short answer to your question is how I got here is more or less by chance like many other reporters.
0: And Maria you and your colleague Clayton Aldern wrote a piece about how you actually did the investigation because so much work went into this. As you write, over the past year, Gris looked at state trust lands, which are held and managed by state agencies for the school's continued benefit and which total more than 500 million surface and subsurface acres across 21 states. I mean, it was fascinating to learn that in on some of this land, you've got cattle grazing, but then under that, is oil extraction. So so talk a little bit about how you all constructed the data set. Yeah, uh,
2: it was a very long process. Um, And there were a few distinct steps. I think the very first challenge was even just figuring out which states had trust lands that sent revenue to universities, the universities that we were interested in. And that alone proved to be a very long task. We'd call, you know, all of these different states to see the the beneficiaries of these different trust land uh, grants. And sometimes, when we were trying to find all of this very specific information, some agencies had difficulty providing us some of those answers because, um, as the investigation shows, a lot of this information is just so embedded in policy that. People, even the ones who work in these departments aren't always very familiar with them. So we started just by going through all of these different states, reviewing all of the different beneficiaries, uh, kind of winnowing down to make sure that we were looking at the right subset of states. From there, we then had to work through all of this data to again find the parcels that we are very specifically interested in and then after that, it was a long process of doing this activity match and trying to um, see, conduct the spatial analysis to see what kinds of activity were happening on what kinds of lands and where that was going on. And the challenge was really just magnified by the scope of everything, because, you know, if we were doing this for one state, uh, that would be a short enough process that maybe we could do it a little bit faster. But because we were trying to scale it up to a national level and then also make that data replicable for anybody who might want to work with it, uh, we had to make sure that everything was cleaned, everything was standardized uh, and legible for people who wanted to get to use the data.
0: Right. And as you say in the piece, to your knowledge, no other database of this kind exists. No, not
2: that I'm aware of, not that we've seen, um, certainly not of the kind that focuses as tightly as ours does. And I think one of the strongest elements of the data set that we've put together was the activity match, um, because we were able to extract the parcels, again, that we wanted to find. But in order to add the texture of what kinds of activity are going on in these different lands, we then we're basically creating another data set that we laid on top of ours. Uh, so we were collecting information from all different states about what kind of land use they had going on. And it was, if you can imagine laying one map on top of another and then cutting out, you know, the information that's relevant to the lands that you're interested in, except doing that digitally and for the country <laughs> was, a, was a, a chore for sure.
0: Since you brought up activities, you report that the activities in these data layers include but are not limited to active and inactive leases for coal, oil, and gas, minerals, agriculture, grazing, commercial use, real estate, water, renewable energies, and easements. You know, I have to say, we we have been covering the climate crisis for years on this show. And I have to say, I have never thought about using land to graze cattle, but then also explore for oil under that same land. And that is what is happening on some of this land that is now owned by the states um, that is used by these universities. I mean, it's, it's what a visual Maria, especially at a time when we're dealing with such a climate crisis. Yeah,
2: actually working with the subsurface and surface acreage was something that our team, talked about a lot, actually, and kind of worked through a few different iterations of how to actually show that. And um, while, while some of that information about uh, subsurface rights, you know, to the rights to whatever resources might be underground, um, isn't always the same as the rights that um, an individual or a state or whatever might have to the surface acreage. Um, and that, that nuance alone is something that was kind of tricky to to figure out how to visualize. And so what you describe of grazing happening on surface lands and mining happening on subsurface um, it's a, it's a strong visual. I think, you know, it doesn't necessarily mean that cattle are always personally being impacted by the subsurface mining that's going on, but it does, I think very visually show how land can be used in all different ways Um And unless you're really understanding the rights to access all of those different layers, uh, it can be, it can be tricky to to
0: show. Right. The other thing that was striking about this Tristan is it seems like there are new books and documentaries about Abraham Lincoln. I, I mean, I hear interviews on NPR about Lincoln on a regular basis. And I have to say, based on what I've heard, I never hear about the moral act. Uh, which gave the U.S. government the power to take land from indigenous nations to fund a network of public colleges across the United States. This was signed in 1862. So can you tell us more about this act? And and in the conversations you hear about Lincoln, do you hear about the Morrill Act?
1: Uh, yeah, I, I mean, America loves Abraham Lincoln. So, um, it's, it's not a surprise that so much uh, material is always coming out about the ban. I mean, he's, a, he's an interesting historical character, but uh, it's only been in the recent last few years, I would say, that um, there has been discussion around the Moral Act. Um, so more or less, uh, the Moral Act, as you pointed out, um, operationalized the ability for the United States to take land from Indigenous peoples and then give it to land grant universities to sell. Um, basically the rules were that universities had to sell it to uh uh fill their endowments. Um from our reporting we found that those lands produced about half a billion dollars for land grant uh universities um you know in right after acquiring it. Uh but you know outside of education circles, the moral act isn't really known very well um it's often referred to as sort of like the democracies colleges and um you know the transformational act uh for higher education in the united states but uh unless you work at land grant universities or you're in education, it's not particularly well known uh not like it's uh it's brethren sort of um acts like uh the railroad act which gave that indigenous land to corporations to build railroads, or uh, what probably most listeners are familiar with, is the Homestead Act, in which uh, land was given to settlers to move onto after it was taken from uh, tribal nations. So the, some of those are the big headline acts of that particular time period. Uh, but um, the Morrill Act sort of is uh, is an
0: interesting one to continue to look into. It is, and especially given that Lincoln gets so much attention in the media. And, and as you point out in the piece, the moral Act is only one piece of legislation that connects land taken from indigenous communities to land-grant universities. Can you talk more about that?
1: Well, yeah. Um, I mean, there are hundreds and hundreds of different pieces of legislation that more or less, uh, make those land management decisions. But I think the big thing that listeners sort of, um, need to be able to kind of like hold in their head is that, um, at some point, the United States was not the United States. And for the United States to expand, the United States needed land. So by taking land from, uh, indigenous nations, either through treaty, through warfare, uh, through whatever means necessary is how the U.S. expanded. Um, all of these different laws, like the Morrill Act, like the Homestead Act, then divvied up those lands once they became the property of the United States. And in our most recent investigation, what we looked at were um, lands that were provided to land-grant universities uh, through things called Enabling Acts. Uh, so, uh, history buffs will know what enabling acts are in terms of statehood, but, uh, the most simple way to sort of put these is that it's what makes a state, uh, territory become a state. So the Arizona territory has to pass an enabling act to become the state of Arizona. Uh, with these acts, um, land is granted to different, uh, institutions in the states. Um, it's kind of like an, an additional ante up. From uh, the federal government to institutions, to you know, pull yourself up with your bootstraps with uh, these uh, with with all of this free land that we that we got
0: for you and
1: uh, you know uh, get get started that way.
0: This is also such an important point because if you sit and think about your city, where is your hospital? Where is your jail? If you have a jail in the area, the university, public institutions like K through twelve schools. This is not something I think a lot of people think about. How did this, these, these schools, these universities, public institutions, how did they end up here? Who was here beforehand? And Maria, I think that's another very powerful section of this piece because it just doesn't get talked about much in these country, in this country. As Tristan said, these enabling acts were uh, grants that functioned like dowries for joining the union and funded so many public works and state services, even fish, fish hatcheries. Um, their main function was subsidizing education, which we'll talk about, but the States could choose which lands would then benefit these things like hospitals and universities. And it's just something that's not really talked about in this country. Yeah. Um,
2: yeah, it was really when we were doing uh, the analysis with the data and we were kind of first going through and seeing all the different beneficiaries that, that were receiving revenue from these trust lands. Um, you know, in the, in the querying of the data, we can kind of make a list and, and look through. And some of the things that we were seeing surprised us initially, you know, when we were seeing things like you mentioned fish hatcheries, um, penitentiaries, Miners, hospitals, military institutions, uh, the Bank of North Dakota, um, all of these different uh, public institutions that really are meant to, to be supported by these lands, as Tristan was explaining when they were kind of first brought up in the Enabling Acts. And I think in conversations I've had with other historians, the idea was just to make sure that these Western states had had the resources that they needed to kind of establish themselves on equal footing as, as Eastern States um, and the 13 colonies in particular, I suppose. Uh, But kind of going through all of that and seeing how long that that has persisted now. And um, I think later in the piece, as I'm sure we'll talk about hearing information about how the revenue that goes towards these public institutions is really saving taxpayers, money. Um, I think there's a quote from the uh, land commissioner in New Mexico when they first broke a billion dollars generated from the state trust lands, that every dollar uh, generated by these trust lands is a dollar that taxpayers don't have to pay. So, um, yeah, state state institutions and public citizens in all of these states really benefit greatly from these trust lands, even if, even if they don't know it.
0: And Maria, as you all report, spread spread across the western u.s land grid these trust lands are often unseen landlocked and anonymous on the landscape yeah oh did i lose maria oh no i'm still here that was
2: that was me um but i was saying it's it is it's there's nothing that distinguishes them um from any other land, you know, when you walk up to to something, as we had some photographers and videographers do for the piece, you know, taking all these really great images of these trust lands. There's nothing that uh, delineates it from from anything else on the landscape. And if you're the way that I would explain it to to friends, as I was reporting at the piece, you know, in the early uh, months when we were kind of trying to just conceptualize what these lands were, is imagining, you know, flying over the U.S flying over the Midwest, in particular, I suppose, where you can really see, if you look out the window, you know, this grid-like pattern on the ground, and it it takes a second to really think about how that grid that you can really see from the air, that you can see in these maps, is something that had to be very specifically plotted out, and then more than that is very intentionally used for these purposes, uh, but it's it's impossible to know until you learn about it.
0: And Tristan, just to spend a little more time on the history of this, because I think it's so important, uh, given that we're talking a lot in this country about the state of democracy and the history of this country and the founders and the Constitution, and yet this aspect of the history is missing from these conversations. I, I know I keep repeating that, but I think it's really important. You all write, backed by the doctrine of discovery, A legal principle with religious roots that justified the seizure of lands around the world by Europeans. U.S. claims to indigenous territories were initially little more than projections of jurisdiction. They asserted an exclusive right to steal from indigenous nations, divide the territory into new states, and carve it up into private property. Although Pope Francis repudiated the Catholic Church's association with the doctrine last year, it remains a bedrock principle of U.S. law law so can you talk more about that um
1: well i'm not a legal expert at least in terms of doctrine of discovery but um you know more or less u.s federal indian law is built on these very outdated ideas of seizing land and who owns land and um you know who gets to benefit from land um so you know those those you know, we're we're still sort of dealing with the echoes of those uh those doctrines the doctrine of discovery and uh and its uh influence on federal Indian law from everything from what we're seeing in Oklahoma with um uh jurisdiction issues with uh the Muskogee Nation and uh Oklahoma's governor trying to assert jurisdiction over Indian land, um all the way to this issue right now with uh how land is being used and how it's being capitalized to pay for uh, schools. And I think when you're talking about that history and the fact that it doesn't appear in a lot of these history books is that I I would argue that if more people understood that maybe the reasons that their cities and their institutions exist, um, you know, uh, is not necessarily a good story, um, you know, it it speaks to People potentially wanting to make some sort of change. I mentioned earlier this idea of sort of pulling up by your your bootstraps. We hear this all the time, and like in in the United States, that you can, you know, that that old sort of like will goes west" immigrant story of like you can you can be whatever you want in the U.S. But you know, like how did those institutions and those communities start? It's through Indian land. You get your homestead from. Stolen Indian land. That Indian land builds your universities and your hospitals. Uh, they continue to be held by states so it can offset your taxes. Um, you know, so it speaks to an origin story that, um, is not particularly nice for the United States, I think. Um, right. and I think it, it, it challenges those notions of, of, uh, of, uh, America being a, the, the kind of place where you can be whatever you want because it's not quite the case.
0: Well, right. And I mean, you start the piece and we'll talk about this later in the show, uh, focusing on uh, Alina Sierra, a student who wanted to go to the University of Arizona, her dream school. And so, so many Native students cannot afford or attend these schools. And how ironic is that given all of the money that they're sitting on, that goes back to indigenous peoples? Tristan, in the research that you all did, why was the main function of these lands f- for subsidizing education?
1: Well, generally it was it's the been the goal of the United States to as it settles and expands is to uh uh more or less expand the colony and when you have a colony that expands any place across the world you need functioning institutions um, and those institutions especially with land-grant universities need to be able to continue to push the ideals of uh sort of w- what that imperial system needs so we're looking at those military institutions we are looking at um uh, mining, we're looking at agriculture colleges. These are all the things that you need to be able to secure land and secure place. You need people who are trained to be able to hold that land. Um, and hold that place uh, so you can continue to expand. So it, it, it's to some degree is sort of a system that continues to roll itself out and feed itself in this way so that, um, so that more or less the, the, the colony can uh, keep its place. And, you know, arguably America has been very, very good at doing that and continues to do that um, in the United States and uh, in its territories and around the world.
0: Maria, would you like to add anything? Yeah, I I think one
2: thing to just kind of emphasize out of what Tristan said is that a lot of the higher education uh, institutions that were being supported by the Morrill Act, by the state trust lands, were public institutions, but then also like specifically agricultural and scientific schools. And so they had these mandates to... Uh, pursue a very specific kind of education, which, as Tristan said, was kind of geared towards the general growth and improvement of this society as it was pushing westward. Um, the focus on agriculture, I think, in particular is is interesting. Um, and, and that's evolved since then, of course, but those foundations, I think, are still very visible and reminiscent um, in especially in looking through the data and how those kinds of trusts have evolved. Uh, and there's one thing I wanted to add also to your earlier question, kind of looking at the history of, of this issue. And, um, I had an interview recently uh, with the Tribal Historic Preservation Officer, John Eagle, of the Standing Rock Sioux Tribe, and we were kind of talking about what the land here was like before all of this westward expansion by settlers. And when we talk about state trust lands and when we talk about the establishment of, of all these western states, I think we maybe imagine that the land prior was just wilderness and that there was nothing there Um But there was, there was a lot of strong infrastructure. And in particular, uh, all of these Indian trade routes existed. And that's what a lot of these roads that went westward were based on and built upon. And I think one of the tricky things in reporting out this piece has been figuring figuring out how to convey that history to people and figuring out how to explain to people who perhaps can't imagine or haven't thought about what land looked like prior to these states um, is important to try and challenge that. And I think the the trade routes are a good example of just saying that there was so much infrastructure that existed um, and it's not that just states happened and then suddenly civilization was here.
0: Yeah, exactly. There, there were complex communities actually in these areas before 1492. And I think this is so important. I was actually rereading the book 1491, New Revelations of the American America's Before Columbus by Charles Mann and it's just it's it's such important information that there were there was trade there were communities there were water systems so much on these lands before the settlers arrived. We are going to take a quick break. Today we are discussing an 18-month-long investigation from Grist. It's called Misplaced Trust. It reveals how stolen indigenous land given to universities is often used for fossil fuel production or mining. Some universities are making billions off these practices. This is happening as many native students have a hard time attending and affording these same schools. Today, we're joined by Maria Parasso-Rose, a reporter and spatial data analyst at Grist who worked on this investigation tristan autone is a member of the kiowa tribe and editor-at-large at at grist and you can find the investigation at yourcallradio.org we'll be back after this this is your call i'm rose aguilar coming up tomorrow we will continue our series on japanese internment Yesterday, February 19th, 1942, FDR signed Executive Order 9066, which authorized the U.S. military to force 120,000 people of Japanese ancestry, including U.S. citizens, out of their homes and into U.S. concentration camps. So we will continue that series tomorrow. If you have a show idea or a guest idea, you can email your call at kalw.org. And if you'd like to join today's conversation, We're talking about an incredible 18-month-long investigation from Grist called Misplaced Trust. It reveals how stolen indigenous land given to universities is often used for fossil fuel production or mining. And some of these universities are making billions off of these practices. If you have any questions or comments about this investigation, we'd love to hear from you. 866-798-8255. You can also email your call at k-a-l-w dot Today we're joined by Maria Parasso-Rose, a reporter and spatial data analyst at Grist who worked on the investigation. Tristan Autone is editor-at-large at Grist, and he also worked on this investigation. When he worked at High Country News, he co-wrote a piece called Land Grab Universities. So let's dive in and talk about some of these schools. Your investigation found that more than half of the acreage uncovered appears in oil-rich West Texas. It's the equivalent of more than 3 million football fields, and it benefits Texas A&M. So, Maria, there's so much information here about Texas A&M. How did you all go about really diving in and looking at the individual schools, how much land they have, and how they use it?
2: Yeah, so... As we were, as I mentioned um, earlier in the conversation, we were winnowing down the states that had trust lands that benefited the schools that we were interested in. And we kind of already knew based on Tristan's prior investigation what land-grant universities we wanted to look at. And as we were kind of pulling the spatial data, we were seeing, you know, more parcels here, more parcels there. And it was really once we dove into the additional state activity that we were really able to see just how much different universities were benefiting uh, from these lands. Of course, Texas has, as you mentioned, more oil and gas production than any other state that we looked at. And um, in the state data that we were able to pull, there was a lot of really rich information about, um, you know, what, what parcels were actively producing uh, oil and gas or, you know, s- parcels that maybe had infrastructure related to all of this uh, production. Uh, but it was, it was, it was a challenge to figure out how to effectively communicate that. Um, and I think, one of the uh, challenges that we were discussing, particularly once we got to the visualization aspect of the story, uh, was how to show all of these different activities that we were seeing, you know, from the the main ones like oil and gas or mining or uh, agriculture and comparing it across all the different states. Um The schools themselves, I think there's a lot of really rich financial benef- benefit information that Tristan was able to pull. Um, and that I think, especially over time, you're able to see just how much these schools are benefiting.
0: It, Tristan, what we also loved about this piece is that you offer the history behind all of this. And, and this history actually affects you personally, as, as a member of the Kiowa tribe, right?
1: Uh, yeah, I, I suppose it does. Uh, the In Texas in particular, um, the lands that we looked at were uh, originally Kiowa and Comanche lands. Um, so, you know, the, I think the impact is there, at least in terms of where histories collide. But I think more broadly, uh, one of the things that we want to hoping to communicate in this piece and to communicate in further pieces, especially for indigenous readers um, is, is really just the wealth of the, the, the massive wealth transfer that's going on here is that these aren't sort of, these aren't one-time incidents that are happening. Um, mm-hmm. And then sort of looking at the, um, the, uh, the, the, the things that happen afterwards, it's, it's wealth, that has been transferred and then wealth that is continuing to be capitalized to support these institutions. And in the case of Texas, um, you know, I mean, just in, in 2022 alone, uh, those those trust lands produced more than two billion dollars in revenue for the institution, which is just a massive amount of money. Um, you know, and, and uh, you know, when you look at the price paid for those lands to the Kiowa and Comanche tribes, I mean, it's, it's two cents an acre. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so th- these are policy decisions that are still sort of happening at this point. When we're talking about wealth transfer, we're not talking about an incident that happened a hundred years ago. We're talking about ongoing sets of choices, uh, that are happening, uh, with these lands, uh, specifically with trust lands, but can be extended to, um, just about any other area you want to expend, extend it to.
0: As you report, the permanent university fund derived from the land given to Texas A and M is worth thirty-four billion. The oil has been flowing from the university's trust land since nineteen twenty-three. You did reach out to Texas A and M, but they did not respond.
1: That's correct. Uh, but to be fair, they didn't respond on the first story either. So we're, we're getting used to that from Texas
0: have any i mean some schools did respond but but their responses seemed very generic can you talk about that experience tristan reaching out to these schools and what kind of responses did you get
1: yeah i guess it's it's not uh definitely not unusual with these kind of stories our first story at, at high country news uh when we looked at all of the universities all 52 universities um yeah i'd say what a third of them even got back to us uh, at all uh, to, uh, to provide comment. And here, about a third also got back. Most of it is fairly generic. Most of them got back to us with sort of how they're working with Native students or the, uh, the different things that they're trying to do uh, to help their Indigenous students and whatnot. But uh, more, more or less, most did not respond, and uh, we, we kind of expected that.
0: What about the tribes? H- how do tribal members respond to all of this?
1: well the uh we have shared all of our data with tribes and we're looking to do a lot more sort of uh diving into this with uh tribal representatives and in, f- in coming stories so um not a, uh admittedly not a lot of uh sort of official tribal voice in this story uh mm-hmm. initially to sort of like set up what's going on here but um in our in our upcoming stories we're really hoping to sort of like dive uh more deeply into that and I think one of the things that I was most happy about in this story is that uh, our data is designed for indigenous users to be able to uh, engage with. It's something that we couldn't do on our first story with High Country News. So if you go to a website and you uh, go to the story, you'll be able to toggle with the map to sort of see either A, the university of your choice and and how what tribes are connected to. Or B, you're able to go to like your tribe's website uh, or, or uh, map and be able to see what universities your tribe is more or less underwriting to. Um, so we're hoping that that access to that data really spurs a lot more conversation um, from um, uh, indigenous communities that, that'll that uh, hopefully help us dive a little bit deeper into uh, the reporting we've got here, because technically this is really just the surface.
0: I, I, Maria, I thought it was very powerful when you read about the land owned now by the University of Arizona that you all actually started the piece focusing on Alina Serra, a 19-year-old who was accepted to the University of Arizona, her dream school. She'd be the first in her family to go to college. Uh, she needed just about $6,500 to attend um, and she was unable to afford housing um, on on campus, and so she couch surfed her first semester. Can you talk about why you all decided to start this piece with her story?
2: Yes, though I will say I think Tristan's actually better suited to answer that. Uh, Tristan, I think, was the one who was corresponding with Alina.
1: Uh, sure. Um, I mean, our our author Amanda is actually responsible for connecting us with Alina, but I will say that at least in terms of starting the story with uh, w- with Miss Sierra, um, we wanted to really make sure that audiences understood that this is a contemporary story. This is not a history lesson. That there are real implications for people today from the decisions that are being made. You know, a uh, hundred years ago. Um, you know, in, in uh, Alina's case, uh, you know, the, the University of Arizona has a native tuition uh, program that's designed to uh, give free tuition to native students Um more or less, to make up for their role with the moral Act. Uh, but what we found in the reporting was that uh, that free tuition only covers the tuition. So it's like $33,000 to go to University of Arizona, and tuition is $14,000. So the rest of it you still have to make up for. Um, and that's what Alina ran into, is that she understood that she would be able to go to school for free um, through that program, and that turned out to not be the case, and she eventually dropped out.
0: Mm. Well, and and when you're talking about the University of Arizona, you report it retains rights to nearly 687,000 acres of land, an area more than twice the size of Los Angeles. The university also has rights to another 703,000 subsurface areas. We talked about this earlier, but this pertains to oil, gas, minerals, and other resources underground. In 2022, the year that Sierra enrolled, the University of Arizona's State Trust lands provided the institution $7.7 million, enough to have paid the full cost of attendance for more than half of every Native undergrad at the Tucson campus that same year. I, I think this is so important, Maria, to talk about these land grants and give the details, but then also focus on the fact that Native students are having a hard time attending these same schools.
2: Yeah, and I think uh, one of the powerful things with the data, uh, as Tristan mentioned earlier, is being able to see it from these different perspectives. Like just on a user and being able to look at a map and see it from the universities benefiting from lands and then being able to toggle that and see all the different tribes related to those lands, um, I think is a powerful if if you know subtle way of reframing the story to make sure that it's centering uh native voices and uh as you're mentioning native students. And one of our colleagues actually wrote a follow-up piece uh recently interviewing students from many of these different colleges to get their perspective on it. And uh many of them were you know surprised, disappointed in their universities uh, to hear that this was something that, again, is ongoing. Um, And just one other thing I'll add about that is uh, with the universities, you know, a lot of them have these climate pledges uh, saying that they want to adhere to climate goals, to decrease emissions and to divest from fossil fuels, etc. And these state trust lands and how they're being used is just another tool in the arsenal that universities have to benefit from. And I think one of the arguments is that, you know, these these lands are state-managed, state-owned, state-owned, state state-managed, but, you know, sending revenue to these beneficiaries and that universities don't really have much of a say in that because the states are the ones who are mandated to generate as much income as possible from them. But I think there's, yeah, there's opportunity here as we've seen already in some of the student responses uh, that, that they're not satisfied with that.
0: Right. Well, to your point about climate, as you all report in this piece, uh, the University of Arizona's reliance on state trust land for revenue not only contradicts its commitment to recognize past injustices regarding stolen indigenous lands, but also threatens its climate commitments. The school has pledged to reach net zero emissions by 2040. Uh, so Tristan, did anyone from the University of Arizona get back to you to answer these questions?
1: No, uh nobody from U Arizona has ever responded to a resp- to this uh, request on this story unfortunately. Mm-hmm. Um, but to you know to your point on those on those lands and and add uh, just to touch more about Alina here is that you know University of Arizona is very vocal about their land acknowledgment that they are on Tohono autumn land. Alina is a Tohono autumn student and cannot afford to go to a school that is making money off of Tohono autumn lands um it's this is uh, i i i don't think that her story is unique um i think that this is uh, happening all across the country um and I, I think it it really exposes that sort of uh, that 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 uh more or less a, a system of apartheid
0: As you report, in 2022, a national study on college affordability found that nearly 40% of Native students accrued more than $10,000 in college debt, with some accumulating more than $100,000 in loans. Sierra still owes more than $6,000. She said, I think that being on Odom land, they should give back because it's stolen land. They should put more into helping us. I mean, ultimately, Tristan... What can come of this piece, given how deep this is, how much money uh, these these this land is still generating, as you say still generating today
1: well i I think that it it in hopefully it will have people start thinking about policy decisions and thinking about the ideas of wealth transfer, what do reparations look like what do what does restitution look like um, and I, I think that land-grant universities are actually really great places to be having these conversations. Um, You know, what... I I think justice is limited by our imagination, basically. You know, so what can be done here? You know, look, like, the the bottom basement line that you could cross here is, like, real free tuition and cost of attendance for Native students at universities. Like, there are not a ton of us. It's not going to break the bank to let us go to, like... Colleges for free, you know, mm-hmm. um, you know that, that's that's the simplest thing that can possibly happen here. Uh, but I think looking more broadly, when we're thinking about this as a wealth transfer, we're thinking about what justice looks like. We can really start expanding the lens quite a bit here. Um, you know, when we think about. W- uh, wealth transfer and indigenous economies, for instance, right? I mean, y'all are in the Bay Area. You're in one of the most expensive places on the planet to live when it comes to property and taxes. Um, and nearby, you have tribes that, that, uh, have almost no control of their economies, but it's more or less, you know, their land in the Bay Area, right? So we can start talking about, like, what does a transfer of power actually look like in terms of, like, Oh, well, what if taxes for the, you know, uh, housing taxes in the Bay Area were going to tribes uh, whose area it is historically, right? It doesn't mean anybody has to go home. doesn't mean anybody has to leave. But we can start talking about, like, what that actually looks like. What does restitution look like? And, again, I think that's where limits of our imagination really come in. And that's where schools should be at the forefront in, in encouraging what does justice look like.
0: It's such a good point. I was thinking when reading this section about the university in Arizona and their trust lands providing the institution $7.7 million, again, enough to have paid the full cost of attendance for more than half of every native undergrad at the Tucson campus, I was thinking about the Navajo Nation that's in Arizona and the fact that 30% of families live without running water. And they have to rely on this incredible organization, the Navajo Water Project, but they base it on donations to bring people clean drinking water. I mean, there are so many examples like this, Maria, when you look at, for example, uh, you have great information about Washington State University. And 886,000 acres, again, so much money. Between 2018 and 2022, trust lands produced nearly 78 million in revenue, almost entirely from timber. There are tribes also in the state of Washington that do not have clean drinking water.
2: Yeah, I mean, that's a really powerful example. And I think it's projects like that are great they're innovative and they're important and they fill a gap that clearly needs to be filled. Personally, I think it would be frustrating to have to feel grateful for that kind of thing. When, as you mentioned, like there is, there is surplus, there is revenue that's coming in for which, you know, there was no initial payment conceded. And we think or conceded isn't even the right word given, you know, Mm -hmm. um, I think this history that we're exploring in this piece can seem really old and you know, it, it's more than a hundred years ago, but at the same time, that's not that long ago. Like there are generations of people who know what these changes looked like as they were happening uh, to their land. And I think the reason that it is in part so unfamiliar is because, you know there's an entire generation of people who has just been really really devastated by a lot of these policies um and hopefully projects like this do more to to bring that kind of attention and like Tristan's saying start these conversations about what justice can look like um, the schools like he was saying are a really great place to have these conversations Um, One, because, you know, there are these institutions that we hold up as places for challenging conversation where ideas are welcome. And I hope that, you know, schools and the people in these places look forward to these conversations. And also a lot of these schools generate the majority of their revenue from other sources. You know, like these state trust land funds are really important. And we're particularly important in the startup of these institutions. But at this point now, like many of these of these universities have so many other streams of income. Um, and so I think pointing at the state trust land thing is an interesting conversation just because it puts into question like, you know, what does it what does it mean to have that amount of surplus income? And at what point is it enough? And then at what point, you know, can something else be done with
0: it? Right. And we didn't talk about this, but it is important to point out, you all report that in 2022, the 14 land grant universities profiled in your story spent a combined $4.6 million on lobbying on issues ranging from agriculture to defense, all lobbied to influence the federal budget and appropriations. So as you say, Tristan, uh, this is not 100 years ago. I mean, they're lobbying on these issues right now.
1: Yeah, that that's correct. I mean the, this uh for uh, Maria spoke earlier about how universities would kind of throw their hands up and say, "Look, we we have nothing to do with this land. We you know, we they're we just take the money and we have no say in it." But they're they do work to influence and have a say over budgets. So they can do that here. Um you know, one of the things that we didn't get into the story here also is what university budgets actually look like. I mean, You know, we're talking about, you know, uh, know, almost $8 million at University of Arizona, which is a small amount technically. But, um, you know, I mean, their football co-share has got a five-year contract at $17.5 million. And we have Native students that can't even afford to eat there. Like, Mm. this, I I, I think that this speaks to what, uh, like... Uh, structural injustice at these institutions, and what we really hope is that more people will uh, download our data, use our data—it's it's free to use—and um, start doing this kind of reporting and research and investigation. Also, because uh, there are tons and tons and tons of stories out there to be uh, to be investigated, um, and I think there are more people like Alina that need to have their voices heard.
0: Yes. And what is next for the team on this issue?
1: Uh, well, we're continuing to uh, dig into trust lands, look into investments. Um, uh, we have a story I, we, I believe is coming out on Friday. Um, I should probably not even say that. But, uh, so, uh, Maria can probably talk a little bit more. If, Maria, if you want to give a small preview here. But,
2: sure, uh, Yeah. Um, the state trust lands that we're looking at, uh, we found a a number of these parcels that currently exist on reservation land. And so we did further analysis to kind of expand our scope to go back out to beneficiaries beyond just uh, universities. But um, we're finding that there are... Um, I'm just thinking about how to say this, but in short that there's roughly 1.6 million acres of state trust lands that currently exist on reservation land.
0: Well, it is such an important investigation. Thanks to all of you, seven journalists worked on this Grist investigation, Misplaced Trust. Stolen Indigenous Land is the foundation of the land-grant university system. Climate change is its legacy. I hope you can spend time with this piece. It's an interactive piece. You can find it at yourcallradio.org. Tristan Autone is editor-at-large at Grist who worked on this piece. When he was at High Country News, he wrote a piece called Land Grab Universities. Maria Parasso rose is a reporter and spatial data analyst at Grist, who also worked on this investigation. Maria and Tristan, thank you so much for your work, and thank you for joining us. Thanks for having us. Thank you so much. Thank you. And again, find more information at yourcallradio.org. Thanks to Malihay Razazan for producing today's show. Thanks to Kevin Vance for engineering our show. And coming up tomorrow, we will continue our ongoing series on Japanese internment. Yesterday in 1942, FDR signed Executive Order 9066, which authorized the U.S. military to force 120,000 people of Japanese ancestry, including U.S. citizens, out of their homes and into concentration camps. We hope you can join us tomorrow. Thank you for joining us. I'm Rose Aguilar. It's your